we acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which you are located. And we also acknowledge the ancestors, elders and families of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung of the Kulin, who are the traditional owners and custodians of the university land on which this work took place. We pay respect to the deep knowledge embedded within the Aboriginal community and their ownership of country. Welcome to the Dynamics of Community podcast from Victoria University. This first series is a group of seven conversations from the project titled Documenting Community-Based Arts Approaches to Foster Social Connectedness and Health Equity. The project is gathering digital stories from young people and creatives about their experiences, visions and practices around arts and creativity that fosters social change. The project is a collaboration with and funded by Vic Health, and the work will support Vic Health's Future Reset program. This program uses community-based art projects to facilitate social connection and increased well-being for young people. The creatives are in conversation with Christopher Son and Matthew Klugman from Victoria University and they took place both in person and online. Others from the Dynamics of Community Research Collaborative were also involved in the making of these. Enjoy this collection of conversations and the rich stories and wisdom from the creatives. interesting on people yeah who's rich um yeah it's always interesting when people ask like who you are because you're always like evolving and changing and transforming um but i guess on a soul level i am ritinyaro rice i am a south sudanese um immigrant migrant i would say i'm a traveler um yeah, um, in terms of my creative practice, it's interesting because I think my connection with art has changed through time, and I think my understanding of art has changed and what it means to like to have a creative practice, um, especially during COVID. Um, once I kind of realized that I wasn't making any art, I was having this weird kind of block. And then I realized art isn't always about you creating something physical. Sometimes art is about you creating something internally. So I realized, you know what, I'm going to create myself. You know, I'm going to create another version of myself. And that's going to be my art practice now. <laughs> that's going to be an art project, I mean. So I, when it comes to my art practice, a lot of it is around, as you know, tapping into and reclaiming my ancestral, you know, I guess gift that I've been passed on. Um, Art is a language that my soul speaks. Um, Art is the only language that I don't need to verbalize or, you know, actually speak. It's something that is, you know, um, non-linear, something that is, doesn't have a form, doesn't have a space. It's just, you know, it's, it's energy. So when it comes to my creative practice, it's a lot of it is centered and grounded in healing, is um, healing myself on a generation and ancestral level, 
is a space for me to really discover who I am and who I'm becoming and why I'm having these, I guess, desires to be this person. So it's, it's a really, it's a, it's a space for me to really experiment, you know, like who I am and, you know, who I'm destined to be and who, you know, I guess who I'm called to be. Um, yeah. <laughs> Does that answer? <laughs> that's so powerful. That's amazing. I think, yeah, I think that's such a. I mean, there's such. I've never thought about it in that. I mean, artists creating the self. I thought that that's such an amazing response. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I wanted. <laughs> there's so much in that one. It's such, but I, I wanted to then say, how did you? How did you become involved in community arts? When, when did that? When did you decide? I always. Or was been... it the calling? I've, I've been involved in like just in community building since I was young and I think a lot of it has to do with just like my mom when she came to Australia she helped a lot of the um, the South Sudanese women integrate into I guess work and like school so she really facilitated that space so I saw that and I was like I, I want to help people you know I want to be able to create spaces um, where if people don't have the language to articulate how they feel, I want to be the kind of the in-betweener. So since I was in high school, I, was, I used to facilitate like homework groups because um, I realized that I had a academic privilege um, in, in terms of like language and understanding, you know, English. Um, so I helped a lot of young people with like maths. I was obsessed with math. I was obsessed with English, so I was able to offer those skills. And then from there, I just got involved with a lot of community stuff. And then I found myself kind of merging art and community and found my ecosystem in terms of people that were practicing art, but also using that as a methodology to, I guess, bring together community or create space for community. Because I never thought that it was a space that existed um so i yeah after i found you know my little tribe i recognized that you know it is a doable reality and it's something that isn't really done well so yeah that's how i got into it <laughs> is it something that um that also links into language like like um does art create a different way of communicating and being with people and, and sharing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that a question? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely, because I think that when how people connect to art sometimes, you know, I don't know how I'm trying to like say it in my mind. It's it's there in my mind. I'm trying to like <laughs> um, speak it out, but I think the relationship between healing and art. A lot of it, part of healing is, you know, healing is something that you don't necessarily have to say. It's a, it's a practice that you do on a consistent basis. So when it comes to community and when it comes to like healing and all that, it, it's about like creating spaces for people who don't have, not, I wouldn't say who don't, but creating a spaces where that is eliminated, that is taken out because language is such a disadvantage for migrants and like you know non-white people so when you take that out you know it kind of creates that equal you know balance where I guess especially being a migrant you go through this 
phases of shame sometimes when you I guess when you realize that you've been colonized and like you know and first that process of colonialism is language you know and even for myself what I've been trying to figure out is that you know like when did my consciousness shift and start thinking in English and recognizing that colonialism is not about the disruption of the external but how also it disrupts your internal self because I was you know I've been really asking myself I'm like did I used to dream in Nuer? Did I used to think in Nuer? And when, and if that's the case, when did that shift? You know, when did my consciousness start really thinking in this language and how has that transformed and changed myself? You know, like how, so I guess, yeah, part of that space, that healing work is just really kind of, I guess, dismantling those areas and figure out ways to bring art into it to kind of discover like what it is, yeah. That's, that's so powerful. You reminded me of Ngugi's quote, the culture, the culture bomb, and I think the role of language in, yeah, I, I guess in doing the work of um, col, col, colonizing mm. um, in a fairly subtle and sort of brutal, mm. um, overt way, but also very subtle way in terms of how it gets under the skin. But, but at what point and what does the healing entail once you start mm. understanding that? Yeah. Yeah, I think once I kind of got to, because when you ask yourself, like, what are you actually healing? You know, and I was like, okay, I'm healing my mind. But then you look at your mind, it's like, okay, what is it about your mind you're healing? And then when I started having those deeper conversations with my community, with myself, we recognized that, wait, colonialism, we've been colonized on a conscious level and recognizing that how do we reclaim language? How do we reclaim self? You know, how do we get to a space where we heal ourselves to the point that our consciousness starts thinking and speaking in our own language? Because, yeah, it's, it's such a very difficult process because you, you get to think about, like, when did that shift happen and why did that shift happen? And, I mean, I don't know if there's any studies around, you know, how, <laughs> I guess, colonialism affects the consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think there's studies, and I, I mean, people often go back to Ngugi's mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. Um, and Fanon's work. Yeah. So those were, I mean, yeah. they really treaties on colonialism yeah. and the mind. Yeah. Uh, um, so I guess, and I think, I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating how you're talking about this and speaking about displacement, the, the multiple forms of displacement mm-hmm. that you've experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, or that migrant communities experience, but but that this process mm-hmm. can be a very difficult colonizing process. It's not just simple assimilation. Mm. With the language that makes soft, softens it mm. in a, in a way which is yeah, so, which is quite which is very powerful, Ruth. Um, and I, I mean, I think you've also given us some sorts of hints around how you think through your own process what how art has been important but through your your mum's journey mm-hmm. also in terms of how she's um, worked with community so I guess the next sort of question is is maybe to articulate a little bit how you think uh, community arts yeah what the contributions are that community arts makes to individuals groups and mm. broader society what the contribution of it how does it yeah, how does it what work does it do for people, for communities? <laughs> what work can it do? Mm, I I feel like though it's it's a grounding space, is a home base for a lot of people, even for myself, 
because I guess part of like when you think about legacy thinking, you know, like things that you want to contribute into the world, um, my contribution in the community art space is understanding that A, our ancestors used to gather and create art and that's the way that community was built. So when it's beyond me at this point because I'm involving my ancestors into it. And also at the same time, it's that thinking of, I'm already an ancestor, you know, so knowing that I'm doing the work now in this, I guess, physical plane and recognizing that this is something that, I guess this is a practice that is not like a colonial practice because it, I guess it creates another space of like how people can connect and how people can build relationship. Um, it's a space where I feel like the contribution to community is that we can dream and we can create these, I guess, kind of political forms and political structures, but use this kind of, I guess, language or space to really tackle it in a way that is not overwhelming. I think that part of healing sometimes you realize that you have to shed your old self and you have to rebuild this new self. But that, that experience is so violent too. So when you bring art into it, it's not that it softens the experience, it just makes the experience, I guess, easier to consume and easier to digest and easier to articulate because I'll I, I give an example. Well, a lot of my, I guess, workshops that I used to do, I still do, but a lot of the workshops I used to run prior to COVID was um, zine work, making workshops. And the framework of that of those workshops is that a lot of it was centered around having conversations um, about mental well-being and mental um, wellness and mental illness, because in my community, we don't really have a language to really talk about these things. So when you bring art practice into it, it's like we're making zines, but at the same time, we're having conversations. So we're gathering in a space and we're talking about this intense topic that is so tabooed, but at the same time, the the way to create that safety is we're practicing art at the same time you know we're not just sitting down and having this serious conversation you know it's like almost art is kind of like the blurring element of it it just makes it like safer for people to have these type of conversations so i think the contribution for community arts is really just yeah a space for us to really yeah I don't know how to say it. I don't know how to. I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm answering the this, question. I know you are. You like are answering it. the question. <laughs> amazing, amazing. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. 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 There's there's two things that stood out for me. Well, there's lots of things in that response through that. I think the the one thing is about um, the relationship between cultural retrieval, culture, and art. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And I think that sort of yeah. And then I think there's the other part about. Um, the role that uh, art is a mediating tool, it becomes this thing that makes um, the expression of, of ideas, experiences possible, mm -hmm. di digesting it in, a, mm -hmm. in a way. So that, I mean, that's a, so I'm getting those two things from, from, <laughs> from how you talking about what it does, but it, it, it's a very, it, it's a very different, I mean, for me, it gives a different sort of way of appreciating um, what the arts practice or the, mm -hmm. the, the arts slash cultural practice, mm -hmm. how intertwined they can be yeah. when you are dealing with um, these deeper issues of mental health, 
yeah. of identity, yeah. of displacement. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, there's there's multiple things that always goes on at the same time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, like it's both a because it comes back, I think, to that kind of stuff around language as well. Like yeah. It's like it becomes a means of having the conversation mm. in, in a way that you said like, this is kind of safe, but also kind of enables it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so it's both a language and a process, and it's and it's not colonial in those ways of measuring or yeah. kind of trying to put a boundaries around or separating or. Or all of those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, you were talking about it blurring and yeah. uh, facilitating connections and yeah. I'm just wondering, I think sorry Matthew, I hope I'm not kind of No, no, I was just saying you're just so rich. Yeah. yeah. I'd be so rich and I'm just thinking because you said that you've I mean, you've done so you've given us an example of how the zine making, mm-hmm. what it does, what it what it opens up for people. I and mean, what are some other examples of your of how you've used um, community arts practice? I would say a lot of it is just my work at Next in Colour. I feel like part of even the colouring book and what it what it offers also for community is that um, a lot of the times, I guess. Yeah, part of colonialism is that a lot of our stories aren't narrated by us. A lot of our stories aren't written by us. So then we we have these observers that are not part of our community telling us about our own stories. And a lot of the times, and a lot of the times, uh, I guess the protagonists and those characters in those stories aren't emphasized or aren't told right. So you when we imagined that space of creating the coloring book was about us, I wouldn't say reclaiming, I, I guess it was all about us disrupting the narrative and being like, you know what, we don't even want to read from your book anymore. You know, we don't care. You can write that book. You can still narrate that space, but we're going to narrate our lives and we're going to narrate our experience and we're going to tell stories that come from us. And we are... And I guess it goes back to, you know, I guess that ancestral play of like oral storytelling part of, I guess, documentation of history, you know, and recognizing that we wanted to create, yeah, we wanted to create the coloring book because we realized that we wanted to document, I guess, the existence of people here on stolen country, especially stories of immigrants and migrants of people of color and have those documented in a way that is grounded on certain themes. So the second coloring book was around support. So, and we had like, I think about like 30 submissions and these were all artists that got to interpret what support looks like and how it feels. And I guess redefining what support looks like from the perspective of community and understanding that. And it was interesting because one of the submissions was around how we can, how a lot of artists don't get support um, from, their, from their family because I guess art practice is not something that is like, you know, like a desirable, successful, you know, pathways. So we're, I guess sometimes we're kind of like, you know, I would say my mom, she, <laughs> when I told her I wanted to become an artist, she just was like, Oh, so you want to paint, you know? And I was just like, no, it's beyond that. You know, it's beyond me just painting. It's beyond me just writing poems. It's, it's beyond that. It's me telling stories. 
stories that haven't been told before or stories that have been told but through I guess colonialism and through history through the loss of our history you know through the loss of documentation that has been I guess those stories haven't been I guess retold I guess so yeah is that, is that a good that's is that a, a great good? example <laughs> I think that's a really neat example and I think there's a couple of things there for me again that um, I think that one of refusal we're not going to read from this book is such a great <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, we're not going to read from that book yeah. we're going to write our own book mm-hmm. um, I think that's a brilliant uh, is it a, you call it a metaphor is it, is it it's a it's a really neat way of of reclamation, I, I think it's sort of is reclamation, but it's also saying that look, we're gonna we're gonna be the authors of our stories. Mm-hmm. I would say it's kind of more emblematic than a metaphor because mm. it's kind of in action, like it's it's enacting a process. Yeah. Of you know, and that claiming, and it was, it was links to that conversation we were having earlier with Rama and, and Mahek about what was coming out about. Yes. Chris was talking about. You know, because Rama had a, had a bit about counter narratives, mm-hmm. and Chris was saying, "Well, you can call it counter narratives, but that still centralizes the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, or you can just decenter that narrative and mm-hmm. say this is not, and this is not even necessarily a conversation, but you know, back to wherever that place is. Mm-hmm. It, it's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it, it reshapes the terrain mm-hmm. and says this is what we're doing, and this is who we're doing, with, mm-hmm. and this is why it's important, and, and you can do what you." What you do, but, yeah. But, but, but that, but yeah. That's not a percent. What you do is not at the centre of, of our work. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of it also when we, I get a lot of the conversations we have at Next in Color is a lot of it is about like legacy and like the platforms and the spaces that we're creating for the next generation, um, and recognizing that we are essentially, I mean, I, I'm choosing to sacrifice myself in order to be that platform. And I, I guess that sacrifice comes with the responsibility of community. Like when you're in this type of kind of institutional spaces, it is a sacrifice because you have to go through those type of violence to recognize what it is and then put a language to it so the community understands like, hey, there's actual this micro violence and this is how it looks like. Um, or there's this and that and this is the, what it looks like because nobody from that space is going to tell us what it looks like because they benefit from that violence. So part of us, I guess, imagining Next in Color is really about, you know, creating a blueprint for a, another generation that is going to use to guide them into these type of spaces because we don't really have people in our community that are, you know, and I'm just saying this from, you know, being a South Sudanese person, there's no, we don't have, I don't have like an auntie that's been here more than I have to be like, hey, how have you navigate yourself in this space? So it's like, I'm the auntie, I'm the one asking myself, you know, how to navigate myself and people are coming to me. I've become that auntie that, you know, young artists are asking me, you know, and even having the privilege now working at Footscray Community Arts, it's, you know, it's me basically being like, oh, we don't want to sit in your table. You know what I mean? We have the resources and tools to build our own table. You know, and we know that we're going to be a big, we're going to build a big enough table to bring everybody and include everybody. Um, so a lot of that is just really recognizing that a lot of the times when people talk about gatekeeping, it's like, oh, that's fine. You know what I mean? Like one day I'm going to knock that gate down, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, but for now it's like, I understand like, okay, you're keeping this gate locked because you know that once we get in there, we're disrupting that space. 
and we know that once we get in there there's going to be a lot of uncomfortability because people you know in those spaces are so rooted in their own i guess internal violence that has been projected into the community that we realize that you know like once we kind of equipped ourselves with those type of resources we're able to we might not even want to go through those gates you know we might not even want to go into those spaces you know so it's like really yeah a lot of legacy building. <laughs> yeah, I think I had a an interesting hearing you say this because I had a conversation with Maz on Monday, and she said she talked about this of going through and finding this language to name this experience mm-hmm. and how important it, it has been to mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And so legacy work mm-hmm. as as decolonial work mm-hmm. yeah. um, as as a sort of a unpacking and sense making of experiences but also putting in place coordinates for others yeah as, as part of that I think that's quite, that's quite that's quite fascinating and it's very different to the ways in which people write about the migrant experience mm-hmm. because this is telling a very different story mm-hmm. of the agency mm-hmm. but also the the, the violence mm-hmm. of, of or the, the blindness of the system to understanding what it's doing yeah you know? Mm. Well, profits from what it's doing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's that's amazing, Matthew. We, I think we had this one. Yeah, though I thought, thought I, I wanted to follow up on that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, go. We, um, well, firstly, with a kind of comment, I think like it was really interesting in terms of that table and, and making your own table because I heard um, something from Mama Alta recently where you know she was talking about. Um, we don't need models of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Like the arts world tends to be mm-hmm. built around all these models of mm-hmm. scarcity, which then you know create these competitive worlds and, and these kind of um, these, these moments of lateral violence. Mm-hmm. You know, where, you know, we can keep bringing people to the table. Like mm-hmm. the table doesn't need to be mm-hmm. to be so small. Yeah. Um, and I thought, yeah. But I was also wondering if you. Um, if you felt able to speak about a little bit more about what it means for you to be sacrificing yourself and also um, the kinds of, maybe there were any specific examples about that kind of violence that, that, that you then have to kind of go through to, to be in these spaces. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly what Angela Davis said, but she came to Melbourne a few years ago at um, Melbourne University and um, I think it was like $200 or something to like buy a ticket to go and see her. But then um, some obviously we had people in that space that were allies that were like just send a, like a community blast just being like, just rock up. Like the bigger the number is, we're just going to walk in there. And I remember one of my friends, Hamishi, was like, oh, you know, all the white people at the front, get up and give those spaces to the black people and the First Nation people. And Angela Davis was like, yeah, get up, <laughs> you know? And, you know, I, and when I saw another person who, obviously an African-American woman, you know, be in allyship in that moment, I realized I'm like, part of the work that she's done and the sacrifices that she's done is that she's able also now to be in a space where, I guess, I wouldn't say people respect her, but there's a power that she had in that space that 
I guess all the white people got up, you know, all the, the first three row, rows got up and they moved. And I realized in that moment, I'm like, part of me sacrificing myself is also part of healing, is also part of me recognizing that these are the spaces that I dreamt for, for myself, and I wish that I had. So there's a part of like my inner teenage self that is like, I'm healing that, you know, part of myself because. I'm essentially creating a space that she wanted to exist in. You know what I mean? And that echoes to a lot of young people and to a lot of people in the community. So it's a choice that I'm sacrificing myself because I've chosen to walk in this purpose. You know, I've chosen to to say to myself, "This is what I feel called to." So I know that at the I know that there's going to be things that I need to give. You know, in order for me to reach a certain space um, for communities, and I know that I have the strength. You know, and I have the resource and the ability to go through that sacrifice. So it's not like I'm just jumping into cold water. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I'm aware what I'm doing and how. I mean, I'm not choosing to put myself in a violent space, but you know, I know that if, if we have to go to war, we have to go to battle. You know, I'm going to fight for my community. I'm going to fight for, um, you know, for my story. You know, I'm going to fight for myself because. I think a lot of it is also <laughs> goes back to the ancestors. You know, a lot of my ancestors didn't get that choice, you know, to sacrifice themselves or to fight for themselves or to fight, and especially being a woman too. You know, a lot of the women in my culture had been silenced for such a long time. And when I cho- when I chose to, I guess, get into this space of like being an activist or disrupting, I guess, traditional policies and traditional structures, I recognized that. I'm going to be sacrificing the fact that not a lot of people in the community are going to accept me or appreciate me, you know, because I told my mom a long time ago, I, I told her, I told her I did not reincarnate myself to live a basic life. You know, I didn't come back on earth again, you know what I mean, to, I don't know if you guys are spiritual or like woo-woo people, but I believe in reincarnation. But I, I told her, like, I didn't, I'm not doing the work that I'm doing so I can be silenced. You know, because I've been silenced for such a long time. Ever since I was a kid, I've always disrupted a lot of things. I've always, culturally, I, I used to be like, why do women have to do this? I don't want to do that. You know, like, why do women, why are women so, like, quiet? I don't want to do that. You know, why is it that men are the only people that get to make these choices and these, I guess, structural changes in our community? Why can't we be, like, participate in that change making? So recognizing that, you know, <laughs> I'm disrupting a lot of systems and spaces, you know, that need to be disrupted because those spaces don't respect me or honor me. So it's like, I know that that sacrifice has to happen and it's a choice, you know, and also it's, I'm not putting my, it's also now that I've had this lived experience and I'm still experiencing, I know now when to sacrifice and when to not sacrifice. So there's moments where I'm like, you know, this is not value. There's no value into me going to this space, you know. And <laughs> I told my mom a long time ago, I'm like, you know, just I'm like, take away that idea that I'm going to, you know, because she's always like, it's a phase. You're going through a phase. I'm like, it's my life. You know, I'm, there's no phase that I'm going through. You know, like this is something that I've chosen for myself. I'm not, I don't fit in that box. You know what I mean? Like, what if I want to be in a, in a, in a box that is a pentagon? You know, what if I want to, 
you know what if I want a circle box you know like why do I have to put myself and I realize it goes back to that scarcity like a lot of people operate from that space because of comfort but it's like no I live in a discomfort place because for me I always tell myself if I'm comfortable I'm not changing or growing you know I have to be uncomfortable because I think uncomfortability teaches you a lot of lesson and a lot of and you see that part of yourself because it's like you you can't always operate from a space of light you have to also understand darkness because without darkness there's no light how do you know what darkness is if you've never seen light and how do you know light is if you've never seen darkness so it's just kind of like balance being in that space of balance of understanding um yeah and that's I, I don't know where that thought was going to go but I was going to wrap it up and be like that's why a lot of my work is grounded in healing because it's it's really about just recognizing that some of these internal stuff that I see of myself some of these stories I didn't tell myself it was told from another person and understanding that okay let me just cut out that line because that line isn't a reflection of me it's not my consciousness saying that this is Ruth's story somebody else interjecting can I follow that a little bit more go ahead because <laughs> it seems like um but the way I thought of it, like like that, that this kind of inspiring sovereignty, hey, like like in terms of that art practice is, is a sovereign practice of, of of discovering who you are and, and, and recreating who you are as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, the the question, the following question I had was, it, does the does the healing work of the art kind of help make that disruption, that that life of, of being disruptive and, and uncomfortable, sustainable? Is the kind yeah, I think that the I guess my art becomes like a manifestation of that healing process. It becomes, you know, I guess a documentation of that process because essentially when I do create, especially some of my poetry and some of my photography, a lot of it captures and talks about certain states, um, like state of mind that I've been in or certain experiences that I've been in, or certain processes that I've experienced. So in a sense, it's like the healing happens and then the art forms itself and the art becomes that object that is like, you know, not that I've healed myself and I'm completely healed, but it's like showing that, you know, for example, there's a poem that I wrote about my dad because he, you know, I respect him as a human, but not as a father because you know, in our culture, a lot of the times men aren't really held accountable, especially when they don't, I guess, take that role of fatherhood serious. And my father, you know, chose to not be in my life. So I wrote a poem about that, get that displacement and, you know, having, you know, like that ghost in the family that nobody talks about, you know, it's like, it's an uncomfortable, you know, conversation and calling that out and just saying that, you know, I respect you as a human, but you ain't shit. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, and that was a healing process for me because it's like, that's the first time I actually sat with myself and said that, you know, like I am hurt. I, I do feel betrayed, you know, because you are a part of me, but essentially you know, that pain no longer disrupts my life anymore because I'm recognizing that he made a decision for himself and now I can make a decision for myself and not allow that pain of his, I guess, his, you know, his lack of love towards me, you know, and recognizing I can just give myself that, you know, and realizing I don't have to run, like, I don't have to go through my life, 
you know, having this longing for him to like acknowledge me and like I can just acknowledge myself and recognizing that I don't belong to him as much as I thought I was and recognizing that maybe his purpose in like his in his life was to just bring me into this world. Maybe that was his role in my life and making space and peace with that. And um and it's funny because even now like he wants to build a relationship with me, but I'm just like it's fine, you know, build a relationship with your own self. I don't care about you, <laughs> you know. But I think like creating work around, I guess, those spaces that a lot of people in our community experience too, because it's not just me that grew up with the absent um, parent or, you know, grew up in a non-platonic kind of family structure. So it's like offering space also for others that never really got to tap into that space being like there's a language for it there's a space for it i think you know our, our, our final question here is is what are your visions for community arts practice I, to, a, to a large extent i think you you've articulated that already but yeah. i don't know if there's anything you want to add or, or mm. i think my vision is just legitimizing art practice as you know i guess as a useful tool and skill I think that people disconnect art and be like, oh, it's just a fun, playful thing. But it's like, we need play. We need fun. You know what I mean? And I think that what colonialism has taught us is to always separate something, you know, and I, and I just, yeah, and, and also emphasizing that our ancestors used to do this. You know what I mean? Like, that is a sustainable thing that they used to do, you know, and that was a way to document, to connect, to emphasize, to rebel, to resist, you know, like art in self is not just one thing, you know what I mean? The more you dismantle it, you realize that art is everywhere. Like somebody had to design this table in order for it to be built. Somebody had to design these clothes in order for us to wear. You know, somebody had to design the camera in order for us to use. Like art is an, is an element that is everywhere. You know, like we look at Mother Earth, it's like, it's a creative thing that we have trees, that we have, you know, like seasons, you know, like that is an artistic expression from the earth, you know, like, so I feel like my vision is really just, yeah, creating a space to be like, this is something useful, you know, this is a useful practice, this is a useful space that can, that can liberate our community, like this is a space where once we, because we experience violence so much, but it's like there's also a space for us to disconnect or to step out of that violence and find ourselves in a place that is that can regenerate ourselves, that we can recharge our, our energy and then go back into that violence, into that disruption. So I just, yeah, my vision is just creating a space that, you know, community can, you know, I guess, rest and recover, you know, from the violence that we experience on a daily basis. So hopefully we can achieve that. <laughs> I've got one final question. Chris, do you have any? No, I, I think that's so, that's so good, Ruth. I was thinking about, it's almost like taking back art, isn't it? It's like, there's a lot of taking, taking it back, um, repurposing it so that mm-hmm. it, because some, sometimes it's just like oh, people are going to make art so they can sell it mm-hmm. but you've, you're giving art a very different mm. different, different meaning <laughs> yeah. yeah but it's that taking back of yeah. it I think that is so um, striking in that explanation that you gave then that's such a rich kind of multifaceted way yeah, yeah. But my final question is just um, wondering if, if there were any reflections you had on because play 
because art is hard sometimes as well, and, and sometimes that creative moment is really painful. Mm. Um, and and the play can be painful as well. Like, it, but it's a necessary aspect. Mm-hmm. But, but I guess I, I'm interested in that being visible as well, rather than saying that that art is easy. Um, you know, what what are your thoughts on the kind of the hardness of it as well, and, and those moments where it's yeah, where it's painful. I feel like during COVID, like I was talking about that kind of like creative block that I had and I realized and I was like, you know, hanging out with my um, my sister and she was just like drawing and I was just like, sometimes because of colonialism, because of capitalism, because of social media, because of all these like, you know, I guess expectations people put in art, we forget that, you, we forget the play of it, like the playfulness of it and I realized I'm like, when I create, I'm channeling my inner child. You know, I'm tapping into that space. I'm, I'm disconnecting from the seriousness of it and I guess the hardship of it, where it just comes from a place of flow, where I'm just like, you know, I'm just gonna create for the sake of creating. I'm gonna create because it's a practice. It's, it's I have to create. <laughs> I feel like if I don't, if I'm not painting, I, I go crazy if I don't like, you know, pick up a paintbrush. So I think that that discomfort sometimes needs to happen because you get to question yourself, why am I uncomfortable? You know what I mean? And why am I resisting this? So I think that these emotions are emotions that need it. I think that hardship is something that reminds you what softness is. So I think that when I do feel these difficult emotions, I'm just like, perfect, great. You know, let me create work from that space because essentially I'm honoring my emotions and I'm honoring things that I'm naturally feeling. You know, disruption is a good feeling. I think that a lot of the times we dissociate ourselves with anything that we consider as negative, you know, but I'm just, but like I said before, like you have to operate from a space of darkness. You know what I mean? Like these dark emotions that we think that are so bad is like, but they're your feelings, they're your emotions. So when I am in that space of discomfort, I'm, I'm always glad. Because I'm like, yes, because now I know that I'm going to create a w- work that comes from that place, that echoes from that space. So essentially, it's, I'm not going to always create work from a place of goodness all the time. Because, you know, like, what's the point of of creating art from a place of goodness? You know, like, you art has to, it captures emotions, you know, and I, I want to be able to not, I guess, internalize these bad emotions um, and tell myself, oh, because they're bad, I'm not gonna, you know, engage. It's like, no, they're good, you know, and it just goes back to the, you know, reclaiming mental well-being. And, and what we've learned in that space is that when you have these bad, you know, like these bad feelings, you need to like make sure they go away. It's like, no, sometimes you need to sit in those emotions and understand that those emotions don't control your consciousness to that level. Or maybe those emotions are you, a part of you communicating to you. You know, so when I am uncomfortable, I'm like, what part of myself is lacking right now? How could I give myself, you know, like room? Is it that I need to rest more? Is it that I need to like do this more? So a lot of the times, yeah, when I'm experiencing, I guess, these things that we consider as bad, I'm, I'm, I'm always glad because <laughs> I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, and I guess also like reclaiming this, like, I think what colonialism has kind of, taught us is to have these type of relationship with words and language, you know, like when we think about like darkness, we we immediately think of evil, you know, we immediately think of something that is an opposite, but we don't really, so, and I always say to myself, say, is it evil that 
is is nighttime an evil concept? You know, is you know when the sun goes down and the moon rises, is that evil? You know, and you know, so I'm always like, you know, darkness doesn't necessarily have to translate to evilness because I'm like, white is evil. <laughs> yeah.